So like Andy said, we are finishing up our sermon series in the book of Exodus this week and next week. And I hope you'll come back next week as we wrap it up um, because I'm going to connect the tabernacle, the book of Exodus, all the way to the New Testament. So it'll be uh, an exciting journey that uh, I would like you to come on with me. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we, we do want to encounter you in this sermon. We know that my words are human words, but your words are divine. And so I pray that you would impress your word on our hearts through me today. So in the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. I want to start with a question. Uh, a pretty simple question. If you could have anything you wanted, would you take it? So here's the deal. God says you can have whatever you want, all right? So these are the things, the dreams, the desires that you've had all of your life. You can have the job you want. You can have the career you want. You can have the success you want. And it doesn't stop there. You can have the spouse you always wanted, the husband, the wife. You can have even the children you always wanted, maybe even the parents you always dreamed of. And the cool thing is it doesn't just extend to just you and your family. Everyone in here gets the deal. Everyone in this church, we can all have exactly what we want. And as a church, we can have our deepest dreams. We can have a, a successful Cornerstone Kids children's ministry. We can have the best worship band in the whole world. We can have the most motivating preaching. We can have whatever we want as we, as we reach the town of Westford and as we grow in, as disciples here at this church. It sounds like a pretty good deal, right? But there's a catch. And it's a pretty big catch. God is offering us all of those things, all of these things, but those things alone. He's saying, you can have Everything you want, but you don't get me. Or you can have me, but not those other things. You can have whatever your heart has been yearning for, but I won't be there. Would you take that deal? Would you take all the things, everything you ever wanted, or would you take God? Today, we're looking at an interesting question just like this in the book of Exodus. See, when we were last in the book of Exodus, the people of God, the Israelites, they, they cheated on God. They had just made this covenant relationship, a, a kind of a promise to God through the, the Ten Commandments and the law, saying, God, we're going to be your people. We're going to be your special people. We're going we're to obey you. We're going to love you. And then Moses goes up the mountain, and they turn around, and they worship a golden calf. And now, as Bernie read in the first eight, uh, six verses, they're, they're now at odds with God. God is upset with them. God's saying, I am not going to go up with you. I'll send my angel. You can have the promised land, but I just won't be there. 
And there's a message that we need to hear from this text today, and it's all about God's presence and how important God's presence is in our lives. And it starts with this simple statement. Without God's presence, we're lost. Without the Spirit of God in our lives in a special way, we're goners. Do you remember kind of the, the opening chapters of the book of Exodus? So if you're new here, this, you won't remember. But in Exodus chapter 3, God introduces himself to the Israelites. So God is the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the, he's the God the whole Bible is about. And he introduces himself as the great I am. He says, I am who I am. Or I will be what I will be. See, the, the first kind of opening of the book of Exodus is an introduction to who God is. God is introducing himself to the Israelite nation. He's, he's, he's actually introducing himself to the Egyptians. That's what the plagues are about. He's saying, I'm a God that's greater than all of your gods. And then through those miracles, the message actually goes out to the whole world. The whole world hears that this, there's this God, this God of this little Hebrew people who is more powerful than any other God we've ever heard of. But God isn't just interested in an introduction. He, he, he's interested in a rescue story. See, he pulls the Israelites out of Israel so that he can be in relationship with them. And this is what that covenant making at, at Mount Sinai is all about, the Ten Commandments. God is saying, I'm going to be your God, and, and you're going to be my people. And the way that you can know and relate to me, because I am a holy God and you are a sinful people, is by obeying my commandments, by obeying my laws. And shortly after this, they, they of course, they blow it, they, they mess up. And that's Exodus chapter 32. Now, if we look right where we are today, so we're in Exodus 33 and 34, but if you look at Exodus 21 through 31, they're about something significant. They're about the tabernacle. So God is giving them the law, but he's also giving them kind of the directions for building a tabernacle. And a tabernacle is a special dwelling place for God, for God to dwell with his people. And then the chapters right after ours, after 34, chapters 35 through 40, they're all about the construction of the tabernacle. They're, they're almost a repeat of the, the passage before it. Now, I believe Moses, so he is the author of this book, when he arranged it, he did so in a certain way to tell us something. There's kind of this sandwich, and the heart of the story is that God has to dwell with his people, or they're not his people. See, the, the tabernacle is at risk because of the sins of the people. See, through the through the people's disobedience, the consequence is not getting to be with God. Everything might fall apart right now. And so they have to ask themselves, do we really want God's presence in our lives? As a church, we're, we're a, a fairly young church. We're at the beginning of what, Lord willing, is a long journey as a church, We'll be here many, many years in Westford and be able to impact our town and maybe even those around us. And as we look at this journey, as we look at where we're going, we have to ask ourselves a question. What matters to us most? Does, does God matter to us most? Does the Holy Spirit matter to us most? Does, does the presence of Christ Jesus matter to us most? Or do we care more about 
the ministry, (laughs) the things we'll do for God instead of God himself. Which matters more, the wedding or the marriage? I pray and I hope that each one of us would determine in our hearts and that we as a church would say at the end of the day, Everything we do is because we are seeking Christ, because we want him in our lives. We want him to be the center of our church. Our vision as a church is to be a gospel-centered church. The gospel, the good news, is all about Jesus Christ. See, without God's presence, without Jesus, we're lost. And as we look through the rest of this story, so we're going to kind of move through the passage, verses 7 through 11, we see this next point, that God's presence separates religion from relationship. God's presence separates kind of empty worship, going through the motions, from a life-giving knowledge and being known by the creator of the universe. Now, the, ver- the next couple of verses, it's, maybe in your NIV Bible, it has a little header, and it says the tent of meeting. And it's kind of this odd little vignette in the story. God's mad at people. You know, God's mad at the nation of Israel. And suddenly, well, Moses is going to a tent to talk with God. But again, Moses placed this little story here to, to show us something. When we encounter something like that in the scriptures that seems out of place, we ask, well, why is it here? And it's here to, to show visibly to the Israelites what it means for God not to be in their presence. What it means for God to be near them, but not among them. See, the tent of meeting was a place where Moses met with God, but it was outside of the camp. And when God gave them the plans for the tabernacle, We see this verse, Exodus 25, verse 8 says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. See, God's presence with them is all that matters, but they're so sinful, God can't dwell among them, or he'll destroy them. And so here we see this far-off relationship that teaches us about the difference between like true and false religion. See, religion happens from afar. Moses goes out to meet with God, but the people, they stay behind. It says, you know, Moses went out to this tent to encounter God's presence, and the Israelites, they stay at the doors of their tents. Now, understandably, they're a little frightened of God right now, but we don't see a heart of, like, humility a heart of saying, uh, of repentance, of coming before God and saying, God, we want you in our presence. We want you to be here. And we can contrast the people's actions with the actions of Joshua, the son of Nun, kind of Moses' aide, Moses' assistant. What, is, what does Joshua do? He draws near to the presence of God. He knows that he's a sinful human being, but he still draws near, and it says, well, like, once Moses left the tent, once God's presence, like, Joshua st- uh, bowed there and, and worshiped. He spent time near God, getting to know God, worshiping God. See, to truly know God, we have to be near to him. We have to spend time with him. We have to ask him to be among us. We have to seek him. 
You may have noticed in our worship services, there was a couple different prayers. There was a prayer of intercession that Andy gave, and then there was a prayer of invocation that Amanda gave. A prayer of invocation, when you invoke, what what that is, is we're asking the Holy Spirit to come. That prayer is is put at the front part of the service for a reason. We don't want to pray at the end of the service that God would show up. We want to pray at the beginning of the service so that we would encounter God's Holy Spirit here in this place. We want to encounter God now. So we want to encounter God's presence because we don't want empty religion. Are you asking God for his Holy Spirit to be present in your life? It's not something that I do, but maybe I need to start doing it, just waking up and saying, Holy Spirit, I want you to be with me today. I want to be with you. I want to, I want to, I want to be with God as I go throughout my normal day so that the prayer of invocation happens for each and every one of us, not just on Saturday, but Sunday through Friday as well. See, religion happens from afar, but relationships, they get up close and they get personal. Compare Israel's experience with Moses's. It says that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. Tim Chester wrote a book on Exodus, and it's been a companion for me through this series, Exodus for You. And he says, here, actually, we see something pretty interesting. Because later in the passage, God says, you know, no one can see my face and live. So there's a mystery here. How can Moses see the face of God and live? And yet later in the story, he can't see the face of God. And Tim Chester thinks that this is a hint. This is a hint of... Uh, kind of differentiation in the Godhood. This is the hint of the triune God that, that Moses in that tent of meeting is encountering the pre-incarnate Son of God. In other words, he's encountering Jesus before Jesus ever had that name, the Son of God. And at the, at the rock later in the story, he's either encountering God in his fullness, perhaps the Father. What matters is that Moses is encountering the presence of God. He is spending time face to face. He is getting up close and personal. Verse 11 adds that God spoke to Moses as one speaks to a friend. This word for friend is translated as friend and as neighbor. Now we live in New England, so we're best friends with all of our neighbors, right? (laughs) Maybe not. But we do get this picture of neighbors, of being neighborly, of Moses and God sitting on the deck, sipping some iced tea. Maybe they've just had a barbecue and going to jump in the pool later, talking about life. There was a relationship between Moses and God. Moses was willing to draw near to God's presence. He knew it was dangerous. But he also knew that that God could protect him. So we each need to ask ourselves, you know, do we want to be like Moses? Do we want to draw near to God's presence? Do we want to be like Joshua? Or do we want to be far away? (laughs) Do we want to be like that neighbor that's like looking through the window curtains, wondering what's going on across the street? (laughs) Because they smell the barbecue and they're like, why didn't I get invited? That's me. (laughs) That's my story. Well, we can always open the door and walk out, walk across the street and spend time with God. 
But there's risk involved because when we get up close to God, when we start to get to know God, he reveals things to us, doesn't he? He reveals things about ourselves that we don't really like. He sees the blemishes, the the spinach caught in our teeth. He starts to mold us and, and change us to make us more like Christ. But that's what we want. Religion stays away from God. Relationship gets up close and personal to God's presence. Now, the Israelites yesterday and we today can experience God's presence for a reason, because of individuals in the story. And we're going to look at the next little vignette, verses 12 through 23. See, we can experience the presence of God because of a selfless mediator. A mediator isn't a word that we hear commonly on the, the news or uh, in our like, popular music. But we do hear about it sometimes. And I, I want to define what a mediator is for you. A mediator is someone who brings two enemies together and makes it possible for them to be friends again. So maybe in a lawsuit, you might hear about a mediator who's, who's trying to bring the two parties together. Ambassadors can often act as perhaps mediators uh, with uh, countries that we're working out our difficulties with. Now, I want to talk about two mediators in our story, the first of which stands between God and Israel. And, and this mediator is the man Moses. See, Moses stands up to God. He, he talks to God. He says, you've been telling me, God, lead these people. He stands up to God and he, and he, and he says, God, you have to be with these people. And the way he does, he kind of goes about this is by reminding God that these are indeed his people. He says, remember, remember that this nation is your people. The the word remember actually means look or see. He's saying, God, look at your people. Look at your people. Look at their faces. Look at their families. Look at their moms and dads and their children. Look at them and see them. You ever just been like really mad at someone <laughs> and then you go and you have a conversation with them and as you begin to talk with them face to face, you realize, oh, I shouldn't be mad with this person. I shouldn't assume the worst. Moses is just saying, these are your people, God, look on them, remember your love. And it's not like God is petulant in this story. He's not changing his mind. He wants Moses to become that selfless mediator. And, and you know what? Moses seems to win the day. We read this verse. God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. There's actually a, kind of a, a shortcoming in the English language here because God is not saying, I'll go with y'all. He's saying, I'll go with you, Moses. I'll only go with you. See, Moses has the opportunity to have God's presence in his life and in his descendants and in his family forever and ever. And he can actually have all the gifts too. He can have the presence. He gets the promised land, but it comes at the cost of two million souls. It comes at the cost of two million people, the the nation of Israel. If God said to you, well, You and all your family get to go to heaven, but it's going to cost two million souls. Would you take that deal? Well, uh, you know, they're probably going to go to hell anyways. 
Moses wouldn't. Moses wouldn't take that deal because he is a selfless mediator. Because he is foreshadowing. That's kind of a fancy word for it. He's like pointing down the road. Someone else is coming. Someone who's even better, who's even more special. Now the reason Moses does this is for that reason, to to kind of foreshadow, but there's another. In verse 15, he says, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. See, Moses knows that without God's presence, the people are nothing. The people are nothing. The nation of Israel is not a special nation. They just came out of, uh, of bondage in Egypt. Without God's presence, they'll probably go to bondage in another nation. They're not a wealthy people. They're they're like the poorest of the poor. They just came out of slavery, 400 years of it. They're not even a good people. Like the Israelites were not good people. They were idol worshipers. They were pagans. There's nothing special about them except for when God is involved in their lives, when God is with them. And the same is true for us. The only thing that makes us special is Jesus. The only thing that makes the church, that makes Christians special is Christ. I wanted to show you a a kind of a picture tonight. It's a little hard to see, but this is a picture of a man in the snow with an umbrella. You kind of see that. So he's just, he's holding an umbrella. You see him standing there. And if this was all you ever saw, you would say, well, there's not... Much that matters about that man, right? That's not a very important man. That's not a very significant man. That's a picture of what it's like for Israel to not have God in their lives. Even if an angel goes with them. Without God, they're lost. I want to show you the rest of the picture. You can tell there's this, this white figure that's kind of standing. And so you're wondering, well, who is this person? See, this is a picture of Jackie Kennedy. It's the night before John F. Kennedy's inauguration. And now suddenly you understand a whole bunch about this guy with the umbrella. You recognize, oh, well, he's a Secret Service agent. His job is to to guard the president, president's wife. Suddenly, he seems a little bit more significant. The cool thing is he's my uncle. (laughs) I thought I'd share that with you. That makes him really significant, right? No. His name was Jeff. The only reason Israel is special is because God is with them. And the only reason you and I are special is if Jesus is with us. Now, Moses becomes that mediator, right? He becomes that selfless Like putting the people first, saying, God, I want you to be with the people. I want you to be with the Israelites. And he points forward to another figure. And this figure is Jesus. This figure is Christ. This second mediator is Christ Jesus. The Bible itself calls him a mediator. It says, 1 Timothy 2.15, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. See, Jesus stands between us and God today. 
See, without God's presence, if God were to just abandon us, we'd be lost. But because we're all born in sin, and that means we're like all born with broken hearts, that like love brokenness, <laughs> we love to create it. And if we don't deal with that sin problem, we deserve to be abandoned by God. Or if that God does come close, we deserve to be destroyed by God because he's holy and we're imperfect. We're, un- we're, we're, we're dirty. We're not pure. And so we need a mediator. And our mediator is Christ if you've put your faith in Jesus. He comes in and says, I will, I will bridge the gap between God and you. I, I, will, I will protect you. Notice that when Moses encountered God's presence, it said God had to shield him. God puts him in this cleft, like in this kind of rock. I don't know what you'd call it, like a cave. And, and then what does God do? God covers him with his hand. See, God protects Moses from himself by himself. Moses doesn't shield himself. He doesn't like curl up into a ball. God puts his hand over Moses. If you know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, God has put his hand over you. Jesus is covering you. Jesus is protecting you from God, from God's purity, from God's holiness. And that's part of what it means to know the presence of God, to know Jesus, to have put your faith in him. If you don't know Jesus, man, I hope you'll, I hope you'll really think about it. I hope you'll ask Jesus, ask God to reveal Christ to you. And like Moses, Jesus is a selfless mediator. In order to shield us, he has to die. He has to take the bullet for us. He has to push us out of the way of that oncoming judgment. See, Jesus takes on the destruction. And it is bad. It's so bad Jesus had to die. That's what Easter weekend is all about. But the good news is that he rose again. He's not just a mediator taking on our death, but he's a mediator in life. Jesus ascended, he's in heaven, and he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, and he's talking to the Father on our behalf. And he's perfect, he can handle, he can handle the presence of his Father. But you can talk to Christ, you can talk to the Father directly because of Christ's work. This is the gospel, this is the good news of Christianity. Do we want Jesus here as a church? I pray that we do. Jesus is what differentiates us from a religion, that's empty. Jesus is what differentiates us from a social club, like just a let's get together and sing songs to nothing. Jesus makes this special. I want to tell you another reason we can experience God's grace, and this reason is experience uh, is rooted in the character of God, in who God is. See, we can experience God's presence because of His grace. Israel deserves to perish. They have just committed idolatry with a golden calf. They have just bowed down. And they, they just deserve to be destroyed. But God does the unthinkable. He offers them grace. And this is all what chapter 34 is about. Grace is defined as undeserved, 
overflowing generosity. God gives his people undeserved, overflowing generosity. And we see this in Exodus chapter 34 as uh, the Lord says to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets. See, when Moses came down from the mountain that first time and he saw the people like committing sin and worshiping the golden calf, he took the Ten Commandments. These were the, the most precious books in all of history. They were the books written by God on, on stone, God's handwriting, and he smashed them because, because God had been sinned against by the very people that he had committed himself to. Moses smashes them, and, and now what do we see? We see God saying, chisel out two new tablets and, and bring them up the mountain, and I'll write again this covenant. See, even though God, even, even though the Israelites are unfaithful because of their sin, God is faithful. God is generous. God is gracious. God is giving them undeserved, overflowing generosity. See, Israel, when it bowed down to that calf, it gave God divorce papers. What is God doing? God's ripping up the divorce papers. Israel, when it sinned, it broke all of her marriage vows. And God is speaking the marriage vows again. There's a renewal ceremony coming up. Israel took off her wedding band and threw it into the sea. And God is pouring a new wedding band for his people. Israel and God are starting afresh. Now, when you've heard someone, when, when you have like a break in relationship, what do you do? You say, let's start again. <laughs> Maybe if you're like just at the beginning of the relationship, you say, hi, <laughs> my name is Jonathan. What's your name? What does God do? He introduces himself. He introduces himself to his people. He says, I'm going to tell you my name, the Lord. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7. I'm going to put them on the screen. Uh, but one pastor taught me this week that these are the most quoted verses in the Bible by the Bible. So if you look at the rest of Scripture, this is everywhere. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. And he, so, and God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. These verses tell us the character of our God, the God of Israel, that our God today our God, Yahweh, is immeasurably gracious. When I talk about God here, I'm talking about a very specific God. If you look in your English Bibles, it says the Lord, the Lord. You notice that Lord is in capital letters. They're brought down a little bit, but they're in capital letters. This is the English Bible's way of saying God's special name. Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. This name is so special. Later in the story, Moses doesn't even utter it. And if we look at the, the kind of the history of the Jewish people, uh, we actually don't know exactly how to pronounce this name. <laughs> we think we have a pretty good idea, but Jewish people even today don't pronounce this name. 
out of reverence for God, out of reverence for Yahweh. But we can pronounce God's name. We can speak it because what? We have a mediator. We have Christ Jesus. God has revealed himself to us through Yeshua. And what does God do right after this? He reveals his character. He says, I am compassionate, I am gracious. In the New Testament, it says Jesus looked on the crowds and he had compassion on them. Jesus has compassion on you and me. This is how we come to know him. He has compassion on us. He softens our heart and we we find Christ because he first finds us. He says, I am slow to anger. He is patient. God has every right to be mad with Israel and get mad with us. But he's slow to anger. I am abounding in love and faithfulness. The word love here is the word chesed. <laughs> and it means like loyal love. Never ending. Like uh, it's covenant love. Yahweh gives his love. love. Love isn't a feeling, it's a choice. And God chooses to give it to us. I love thousands and I forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Our God, our Yahweh, he is quick to forgive. I do not leave the guilty unpunished. (laughs) The great news is that this this Yahweh, this God, not only is he good and kind, but he's also just. He doesn't ignore wrongdoing. He's both tender and tough. That's kind of God I want to know. But there's an odd statement, a confusing statement. It says he punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Well, that kind of makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) How can this God be so loving and so just and so kind if he's being vindictive towards like children and grandchildren? Well, when Moses uh, originally got the Ten Commandments, Israel, when they worshiped the golden calf, they broke the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and they also broke the second commandment. No idols. And right when it starts to talk about no idols, it says this in Exodus 24 through 6. It says that Yahweh will punish the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So these are people that reject God. But then it adds, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So if Moses had like, Microsoft Office, and he could graph God's love on an Excel spreadsheet, it would look a little bit like this. (laughs) So these are generations. On the left, we see God punishing sin, (laughs) and that is four generations. And what do we see on the right? We see God showing grace and love to a thousand generations. The picture Moses is painting is that we believe in a gracious God. We believe in a God that loves, that loves us in despite of our sin. I don't know about you, but I want to I I know God through his grace. I want to know God through his mercy. I want to experience the presence of God in my life. And so that's kind of where this sermon ends up leading. Well, this sounds great. How can I experience this? Well, first, you have to know Christ. We know God's grace through Jesus, through God's Son. If you don't know him, come talk to me. But it's, it's, a, it's a life of repentance and faith. 
But we do see Moses in Exodus 34 giving us kind of four ways to cultivate. So you already know Christ. Well, you can seek God's presence through worship, through prayer, through fasting, and scripture. And we see this in chapter 34, verses 8 through 35. Right after God introduces himself, it says, Moses worshiped, verse 8. Moses bows down and he just worships. When we come here together to worship, we're seeking to encounter God's presence. And you can bow down through the week. You can seek to encounter God's presence at your office, in your family, when you're all alone. The second way is prayer. We don't pray to just get presents, to just get gifts. We pray to get God's presence. I would challenge you to think about your prayers this week and and try to be intentional just asking for Jesus to be in your life, for the Holy Spirit to be speaking to you and to to be molding and, and challenging you. Fasting. I don't think we've ever talked about fasting as a church, but we see uh, in verses uh, towards the end, it says, Moses was with Yahweh 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. He is so nourished by God's presence, he doesn't need food or drink. I want to challenge you to, to like fast something this week. Maybe after you've had dinner Wednesday night, don't eat breakfast or lunch on Thursday. When, you're, when your tummy starts to rumble... <laughs> As mine does, just remember, I'm hungry for Jesus. I'm hungry for the Holy Spirit. And take that time, maybe it's like five minutes, 10, 15 minutes that you would normally spend eating and spend it praying. I'll do it with you. Come tell me how it went next week. Scripture. All of this is Moses encountering the words of God. A big chunk of chapter 34 that Bernie didn't read is just God giving the commandments again. When we encounter God's words, we're changed. And this is why we spend time hearing God's word right now, but also in our own time, reading the scripture. It says, when Moses came down the mountain, his face was like radiating. His face was glowing. The people were frightened of him. People didn't know how to handle him. When you encounter the presence of God, people won't know how to handle you. There'll be something different about you, something that is just glowing. It's not you, it's the Holy Spirit. I want to end with a question. Do you want God's presence or do you want his presence? (laughs) Do you want his gifts? I was recently invited to a birthday party and the invitation said something like, please, no gifts, just bring yourself, bring your Presence is a present enough. <laughs> Have you ever received that? Or maybe on your wedding invitation, you, you said, you know, uh, your presence is the only present desired. If we as individuals and we as a church were to invite God to our party, what would that card say? Would it say, we want your gifts, but you don't need to come? <laughs> or would it say, you know, we want your gifts, you can come too. Or would it say, what we care about most is you, Jesus, and we want you here. Would you please be here? It's my prayer for each of us that as a church, that as Christians, that this would be our prayer. And if you don't know Jesus yet, I pray that this would become your prayer too. Jesus is the best gift. 
Do you want God's presence? Let me pray. Father God, thank you for sending your son so that we can know you, so that we can be in your presence through Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Lord, I lift up this offering that we're about to take. It's an act of worship. Would you help us give generously? Because we know how much you've given to us. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.